You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Pete, Maz and Neil. From the Playboys and Provocateurs to Tiki Taka to Gagan Pressing, we'll be looking at some of our favourite cult sides and players from down the years. Shaky on the facts but heady with nostalgia, this is the football podcast you've been waiting for. So finish up your pre-match stretches and go with Four at the Back. Welcome back to Four at the Back. This week we're at the Valley and we're discussing Alan Kerbishley's Charlton side from the turn of the century. Having already had one bite of the Premier League cherry, they came back up in the year 2000 playing enterprising football that earned a lot of plaudits at the time. They were the first in a long line of smaller clubs who came to the Premier League and didn't just play to survive. Instead, they attacked and they thrived. I've got Peter Neil with me this week. Neil, you've got some close family ties to Charlton. Why don't you kick us off? What made this Charlton side different to the Barnsleys and Bradfords and the like from around the same sort of time? Yeah, my, my brother's a Charlton fan. Uh, so I kind of, um, and, and he was a, a season ticket holder at the Valley, like throughout the 90s. So um, it's quite interesting because I kind of had a uh, sort of, you know, a, a sort of Saturday evening debrief every uh, every weekend from him on uh, on on what had been going on, sort of from their kind of um, wilderness years before they went back to uh, back to the valley. You know, all the way through to that '98 playoff final, and um, you know, and then their kind of first stab at it, and then their you know their second um, their second go, and, and I think probably. You know, in terms of this season where they kind of take the league by storm and finish ninth, kind of anticipating what would maybe happen down the line with teams like Bournemouth um, and Swansea. Um, and I guess probably even that first season of Hull, actually. Uh, you know, I think it's the fact that they had that really good blend of some veterans. Um, you know, they kind of and then they had their, you know, homegrown um youth players you know the, the the Charlton's greatest strength to this day has been they've got one of the best academies in the whole country you know and they over the years produced Scott Parker Jermaine Defoe Rob Lee um John Joe Shelby you know they they just seem to have that kind of conveyor belt of talent coming through all the time and you know when you you kind of looked at that that team that they uh they put out of that season it was just a really good blend of sort of players that had come through uh, with some players with good Premier League experience. Um, a lot of internationals in there, you know, Mark Fish, South African international, Mark Kinsella, Republic of Ireland international. Um, and, you know, I think those two uh, English defenders were really important as well. Richard Rufus and Chris Powell, both, you know, really good, really underrated pros. Um, and, you know, Kerbisley just basically was able to keep a pretty settled side. Um, you know, they they kind of they didn't back down from people, and um, and they just went for it really. And I and I think that sort of approach um, was always likely to play you know to pay dividends really. Um, I think if, if you look at the teams in the two thousand two thousand and one Premier League um, that actually ended up in trouble. Um, you know, it was kind of Bradford who were, you know, in that sort of second season trying to survive. Um, Coventry, who obviously were kind of on borrowed time for quite a long time before that. Um, and Man City, who, well, they just kind of were about to have a little bit of a nightmare, weren't they? Um, but, you know, Charlton that year, they finished above Southampton, Newcastle, Spurs, Leicester, um Barra, West Ham, you know, so they're, they're sort of, yeah, they're punching well above their weight. And, you know, they were only uh, two points off Villa. Um, so a really, a really creditable finish. Um, and I think probably as well that that experience of going up 
coming straight back down and then coming back the stronger for it. I think you saw that with Sunderland as well. Um, a, a few years before, was it about 96, Sunderland came up, went straight back down. And then when they came back up the second time, they were really good. Yeah, that sounded quite well. That I mean, Newcastle right, fans right. not not going to uh, not going to admit that clearly. That was but. that was, <laughs> but I th- but I think that I think the point you're sort of making is that they sort of had that taste of it. They got it wrong. They went straight back down, but they kept the same man in because Kerbishley was there the first time round, wasn't he? I mean, he'd I been was, there since. I mean, he yeah, he'd yeah. been there since. Uh, I mean, he'd been one. Yeah, and, and I'm fairly sure when Sunderland came back went down, they would they they had Peter Reed and they stuck with him. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and it's 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 just an interesting thing. I mean, well, obviously, recently this season we've had Sheffield United are obviously struggling, and um, Chris Wilder's obviously just gone under under a bit of a cloud by the sounds of things, and it's it's strange how so many clubs. They get relegated, they dispense with the manager, and then they have to start again. Whereas, you know, the experience that Kirbishley had with Charlton in '98 um, meant that the club were well equipped. They they knew what they had to do. They knew what they had to bring in. And, and you you get the impression that there's a lot of clubs who, when they come, Barnsley, I remember, seemed to try and get as many experienced players as they could, and they ended up with a pretty average but very slow squad very old team wasn't it yeah <laughs> i mean neil, neil redford neil redford was obviously in that team because he's in every team that got relegated seemingly absolutely um, it, 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 it charlton seems to have sort of got, gone with a mix of their more sort of experienced pros with some and, and they blooded some youth and they brought some youth through and and it kind of i suppose it sort of galvanized the team that little bit more I think it also helps that there are a lot of teams who are struggling that season. Like, you know, you've, you, we've talked about some of the teams who are down there. Everton finished 16th. Uh, West Ham were 15th. You know, established Premier League teams seem to struggle and, and Charlton sort of made the most of it. And this was the season that obviously Ipswich finished 5th. So I mean, there Everton, was obviously... Everton were usually down there at this point, as we discussed. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't on, right. on the, the last episode, they... Once they do dispense with Joe Royal, they go on this run where in you know, bottom half side was was the norm, and they were often likely to be uh, struggling against relegation. I mean, I remember when they first came up, Charlton, and possibly because attention to the lower leagues and and that includes the second tier when you're that age isn't great. There was a bit of a sense that this was another Barnsley because we weren't used to, without wanting to be disparaging, genuinely small clubs coming up. Uh, a couple had been in the Premier League in the first year or two, and, and provincial sides sort of came up, but but sides that were seen as genuinely smaller. I think the last one to to really get promoted was had been Swindon Town, and so and and we know how that went. So when Barnsley came up, there was a lot of, with all due respect to Barnsley fans, there was a lot of mockery in those places where you don't meet Barnsley fans. I can remember people, even the, the name of the team started to be used with a slight inflection that made it sound like an insult. And and they went down without too much of a, a, a struggle. So the next year when Charlton came up, I remember it being exactly the same thing. And within about a couple of months, all of a sudden that had gone and all we were talking about was uh, Clive Mendonca. Yeah, it's a real shame of Mendonca because he, he got, you know, bad, bad injuries and, um, and you know, he kind of ended up having to uh, to retire early. But, you know, in that that promotion season, um, you know, that, that culminated in that, that very thrilling um, playoff win against, uh, against Sunderland, like they... Yeah, he was banging in the goals, absolutely banging them in. And I think probably that first team that went up um, and, and played in 98-99 in the Premier League was a bit more, probably even a bit more flamboyant. And I think probably what Kirbishley learned was was just to kind of tighten things up a little bit um, and be a bit a bit less naive. They still playing nice football when they came up the second time, but probably they'd learn a bit more steel. Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, when... We were talking earlier on about um, United, Sheffield United getting rid of Chris Wilder. I mean, Norwich obviously opted to keep Daniel Farker and 
they are runaway leaders at time of recording um, of the championship. And it'll be interesting to see if second time around uh, how Norwich get on again and whether they kind of go this Charlton route and kind of learn from that experience. Um, but I think, you know, managerial stability is a really important part of this story. You know, Kerbishti, as as we said earlier, took over in 91, initially as uh, co-first-team uh, co coach with Steve Gritt, who you know, both of them had been um, very important, you know, players for Charlton. And, um, you know, eventually Kerbishti took sole charge, as often happens in these cases, with the joint managers. And, um, you know, they had basically been there or thereabouts in um, Division One throughout that kind of period you know bringing through these excellent youth players and selling them on a profit and they kind of finally made it into the promised lands and as we said made it stick the second time and so um you know that stability and Kirby being you know talked of as as one of the best young managers in English football for a really long time and yet he never he never took that big job until you know, quite a, a lot later when he, I mean, I guess West Ham is a slightly bigger job, uh, but he never took the big, big job. He stayed very loyal um, to Charlton throughout that whole period of time. And again, probably Eddie Howe is a, a good a good equivalent, you know. He stayed incredibly loyal to Bournemouth to the point where, you know, um, to his detriment, they, they somewhat, yeah, somewhat ungratefully sacked him at the end of, uh, end of last season after he pretty Which much is... performed miracles. <coughs> Which is, considering what we've just said, that, you know, Harry's experience of the Premier League and, you know, it, it, it went wrong for them. But you, ha you have to ask yourself the question, did we really expect a team the size of Bournemouth to last as long as they did in the Premier League? Of course um, not. Or, or, you know, having established the team, was it then a bad job of, for them to get relegated? And I suppose that goes for... Um, I'm not going for any of these teams, really. I mean, your, your Wiggins, your Swansea's, your things like your teams like that, who have spent all that time sort of establishing themselves as Premier League teams, and then you sort of end up in a situation where you're getting relegated again. Is 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 that bad management, or is it just inevitable given the the competition that exists? I mean, the Premier League, you could argue, is kind of it's two leagues, isn't it? There's, there's the big six, and then you've got the other fourteen teams who are kind of just who are just trying to survive, really. And in any given season, any one of them could, you know, a bad run of form something like that could end up with them going down. So, yeah, know, Bournemouth was it's, it's it was a question, isn't it? All about injuries, really, for them last season, wasn't it? But I think, I think you know, you're right. For all of those smaller teams, no matter how well they seem to establish themselves, ultimately. Unless they get, you know, like if you take, let's take Leicester, Leicester got a money injection from a foreign owner, which means that although they're still seen as a kind of smallish team, actually they've been, not. yeah, they've been pretty, uh, you know, pretty quietly successful for a long while now. And that's probably sustainable as long as they've got that, that tie ownership. I think for, for, you know, teams, like like Bournemouth, you know, like Charlton, like, uh, you know, like Swansea, uh, eventually that kind of money ball approach of, you know, do as well as you can with the resources that you have. Inevitably, there's going to be a season where you have injuries, where maybe the manager's got a little bit stale, where uh, things just go against you. You might concede a couple of last minute winners and you know, and that's the that's going to be the difference for you in the end. So, yeah, I don't know if any team is ever like truly secure. It'd be interesting to see. Like, probably the last big, big team we saw go down was Newcastle. Uh, be interesting to see if that might happen again to you know to a team. Um, yeah, Newcastle and Villa really isn't up, it? For listeners catching up, we're recording this in March of 2021. So. I suppose we could be talking about Newcastle in June, but we, we mean Newcastle's relegation five years ago. <laughs> Which I suppose was the same season that Villa went down, so you had the two at the same time. Yeah. 
But I mean, you th- I mean, thinking about it, I mean, teams like you know, you know, Brighton are probably the, the closest in, in in the league at the moment of, of those sides who you think you know a bad run of it, and and then so I mean, Sheffield United have just been, you know, they they've 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 gone as quickly as they came up almost. Um, but you think, yeah, you know, there's that team, there's that stretch of maybe fourteen teams, and at one point this season, Southampton were top, and there was talk recently of them being dragged into a relegation fight and but it could be South it could be Everton it could be Villa it's Newcastle at the moment you know it there's it's it's a really tough league once you get below those top those top sort of six or seven sides absolutely um, I mean but it's it's tougher for the sort of teams like these the Charlton that we're talking about because there is a difference between a lot of those teams and even the likes of the Leicester cities and the West Hams and mm. Charlton Swindon Barnsley, Blackpool, you know, the, the, you, you can rattle them off. There's a lot of sides that you come and go, OK, you're going to have a couple of years. And if you're lucky, it may be real run for five or six. But, you know, what goes up in the case of those, you know, I, again, I don't mean any insult when I say it, but smaller sides, what goes up must come down. We all knew Bournemouth, it didn't matter how well they did. There was a, a shelf life on that team. And it probably had a lot to do with when they got rid of Eddie Howe, but as it turned out, it had a lot to do with COVID restart of the season and Villa pulling a rabbit out of a hat. You know, they had no business going down other than that, but you knew looking at it that there was going to be a, a time limit on how long that they were going to be able to spend in the league. And that's not something that applies to that next setup where bad management often has to, to to come into play. Uh, And one of the things that we see with Charlton is that they're a real kind of crisis club when, well, really for the first couple of years that Kerbishley's there, he's working under real serious constraints where they have to sell to buy and all all kinds of things. They get into the Premier League twice, and within a year of him leaving, they're on the way back down and, and arguably worse off than when he comes in a, oh, yeah, a decade definitely. or so later. So, yeah, it, it's, one, it's one of those things where so often this is tied to not necessarily an individual, but a, a regime, if you like. Yeah, but it is true, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, look at Forrest post-Brian Clough. Oh. You know, Forrest became, you know, Forrest became, I mean, really, I mean, in the 80s, so with late 70s, early 80s, you know, they were, you know, the big, in a, you'd say they were in a big three or a big four. Um and certainly, even when I started watching football in the, you know, mid to late 80s, early 90s, like Forest were a big, big team. And then as soon as as soon as the, the Clough era comes to an end, you know, they were a yo-yo club for that those first few years, of the Premier League. And then uh, haven't been back since 2000. Uh, and a lot of that's got to do with bad chairman and bad management and a lot of other things, too. But once that Titanic figure goes... Right, and for uh, for uh, for Charlton, that was Kirbishley. Um It's very, very hard for a, a team without those, you know, huge amount of resources to to make it stick with another manager. And I would be surprised if Bournemouth make it back into the Premier League anytime soon, because obviously, as we know. Uh, the championship is a brutal, brutal league to get out of. It's, oh, yeah. you know, probably the most yeah. competitive league in world football. I was just, I was just going to, you raise an interesting point because you say about these sort of individuals who kind of define clubs more than, you know, perhaps the the players involved, and you know how going from Bournemouth probably it's probably consigned them to, it's going to be very tricky for them to get out. You think you think the same Sheffield United with Chris Wilder. Um, We've discussed um, Sam Allardyce and uh, Bolton. I yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a Bolton have massively mismanaged ever since, but you know they're never coming back. Charlton haven't been back, um, and so you, so you sort of how how much how, why do clubs not recognise what they have and how important the manager is because. You know, some managers, they're not that important. You could give, uh, uh, you know, Sam Allardyce famously said, you could, if you gave him Klopp's Liverpool side, then he'd, he'd probably do quite well as well. Um, if you gave Klopp his West Brom side, maybe not so well, although that's come back to, to, to bite him, to be fair. Um, 
how much why why do clubs just dispense with managers as soon as results sort of go I, I know it's a results driven business but it seems incredible that these managers who get these clubs to where they where they get to against all odds and they they dispense with them and then it's, wonder two two or three years later when they're back down in league one or wherever they came from what the hell happened well, it's money isn't it but it's, also, but it's also, I think it's also burnout. You know, I mean, Kirby left of his own, you know, his own volition. He, yeah. he, was, yeah. offered a, he yeah. was offered a contract extension. And he chose, he chose not to take it. He had a short sabbatical, and then of course the West Ham job came up, um, and he took it. And I think the thing with Kirby is, it was always assumed that he would end up taking a big job, and and he and he never actually did. And there was that sort of weird meme that went round before memes were a thing, but. But there was that that weird uh, thing where Kirby was linked post, you know, post sort of 2008 after he'd left West Ham. He was linked with every job ever, every time he had a job. Uh, um, <laughs> but he just he just never took another another manager's job after West Ham, and and I suppose he just kind of having been a very young manager at the beginning, you know, he only just finished his playing career. I suppose. I suppose he just kind of decided that that was enough for him, but but yeah, I think I think you know it's either burnout. Eddie Howe was very burnt out at the end. I think there at Bournemouth, uh, you know, Brian Clough was, you know, an alcoholic and you know, obviously uh, of retirement age at that point anyway. Um, I mean, the only people. I mean, even if you look at Wenger at the end, I mean, the, the sort of haunted skeleton that Wenger was at the end of his Arsenal tenure you know these managers that kind of have this iconic sway over their clubs you know probably only Ferguson's the only one really that just kind of you know uh really left completely on his own terms ironically David Moyes is probably another uh, uh, to a uh, lesser Everton, extent yeah. but yeah that's a at Everton he, 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 he probably was I mean, what I would um, say is that these are the the atypical examples. I think uh, more often than not, it does come down to to money because most of the time the the managers are sacked. It isn't when they've already gone down. People panic because the fees involved in terms of you know TV rights deals and all that over the years. Certainly since Kerbishley's time, I wonder if he would have survived that first season in the Premier League, uh, oh. even just a few years later. Um, but the fees involved are so large that. Teams will try anything, trying that proverbial new manager bounce just to scrape enough points to get another year in the top flight. I think that that, that is why uh, it it happens in a lot of cases. Now, these are all valid examples that you're just bringing up there, but they're they're the atypical ones. Eddie Howe probably was burnt out, but he was also unlucky, I think, is is the other thing to add there. Um, Clough is obviously a massively atypical example, and it's also in a different era, and he was old and as alcoholic, as you say. So there's all these these kind of other other layers. I do wonder, you know, if if Charlton um, had had moved, you know, because he said that he never felt like the the job that they'd done said that he should be relegated. And he's right. They they went right the way to, I think, either last but one day, or either that or the very last day, to see whether they could stay up. That first season, yeah, they yeah. nearly made it. So he he said he didn't think that the job he'd done warranted sacking, and obviously his chairman agreed. But you wonder if that was a few years later, is okay, we can get somebody else in to to manage us for six or seven games just to get us that extra two or three points that we need to survive. And what we saw in the twenty first century is that chairman did that more often than not. Uh, obviously, they would have missed out on probably the greatest period in Charlton's history had they done that. I mean, I'm, think, assu- I'm assuming that, that cost would have been a much bigger issue back then as well. I mean, the, it, generally speaking, I would have thought that managers now are much shorter contracts than they used to be um, for that simple reason, that the, the life expectancy of a Premier League manager is it's on average to be something like 13 or 14 months, I think. I, I'll have to, I might have to look that up. But it's it's not great, especially when you take out the likes of Ferguson and Wenger and, and the likes of that, the outliers. I mean, um, they, just to jump uh, in, so that I mean, the the length of the contract may have changed, but the wages of managers has changed dramatically as well. I mean, it would. Oh have, sure, but, it, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't it's have. All cost, relative. It's, it's all I, relative. 
I've just said it wouldn't have actually cost them that much money to sack Kirbishly. It was more they thought he was the right man for the job. The other thing is there's there's not as many people around who you think, oh, we'll, we'll chuck them a chunk of money because they've got a proven track record of keeping teams up. That seems to have become a thing in the last sort of 15 years or so. At, at the time, it wasn't really an option for a club like Charlton to say to a... Uh, a, a reputable manager with a track record of doing that. Here you go. You've got you've got twelve games to keep us up. So I think there was generally sides may have stuck with their managers a little bit more back then. I mean, again, it, there seemed to be a, a fair amount of, of of moving around at that in those days. End, but I, I do think the sort of the the trigger happiness of club owners has has become more prominent in the last or 10 15 years or so i think oh, the other thing the other thing about kerbishty is that if it was 2020 2021 you know these young managers that that have promising starts in the championship will quite often get poached by a bigger club quite early on um and you know kerbishty was doing a really good job from the word go um and, you know, you kind of think, you know, it was it's sort of seven year journey to get them into the Premier League. Now, um, at some point, a, either, a, you know, a bigger Ensley club or a or, a, you know, lower level Premier League club probably would have poached him. Um, obviously, he was very loyal, so it's not no guarantee that that would have happened. But, you know, in terms of the way that the money works now on the you know, power brokerage works, you know, I think maybe uh, a lot of teams would have tried quite hard to get hold of his services. But, you know, I think, you know, they knew what they had on their hands with with Kirbishty and they knew that he was the right man for the job and that the way that he patiently built the club into promotion contenders and, you know, uh, a team that almost stays in the Premier League, I think they understood the value of that. Um, and it's a very specific skill set to kind of build the kind of uh, the kind of house that he built. Um, there were so, a, so I was just going to say because it relates to what you were just mentioning. There were only about three sides who tried to poach him, I believe, that that were anywhere in terms of actually approaching the chairman. Um, as I understand it, in the nineties when he was still managing them in the first division, there was these moves by Birmingham and QPR to bring him in. And obviously, as an ex-Birmingham player, he was more interested in that. And there was the idea that he'd probably have some money. And QPR had been not long relegated. So there was a move to maybe push those back up. But he found them quite quite easy to turn down. And then ultimately, there was a move by West Ham when they were in the Premier League. I think that may have been to replace Harry Redknapp. Uh, but the long and short of it was that uh, he didn't go then and obviously ended up taking the job a lot later. I don't expect a Tottenham fan to ever say West Ham are a big club, but as Kirbishley is a lifelong West Ham fan, perhaps there's no bigger club for him to have managed in uh, in that sense. Um, so you do wonder where else he could have gone after that. Personally, I always wanted him at, at Villa. In uh, he Latter was heavily years, linked but... to Villa, wasn't he? Uh, at like <sighs> Two or three around, times. Yeah, certainly around the time... That O'Neill took over. I remember it being. I remember it being. Yeah, that was when he just left Charlton and hadn't got the England job. And he, obviously, O'Neill comes in not long after the 2006 World Cup, where we already know it's going to be McLaren by that point, and he's let, already left Charlton. And yeah, I, I was always quite keen on the idea. I, I think this track record speaks for itself, and I think he did quite good at West Ham in what were very difficult circumstances as well. Uh, but yeah, it does seem like the desire to manage anyone else may have gone. I mean, when you spend that long at Charlton, there was clearly a lot of loyalty there on both sides. West Ham were his lifelong team as well. Once you've managed those two, do you really want to do anything else unless your country come calling? I mean, do do you want to be one of those managers who keeps going to teams who are always expecting a little bit more? Kerbishley's always struck me as a pretty pretty bright bloke, to be honest. And he's never been part of that sort of big merry-go-round where, um, you know, with you know, Mark Hughes, Steve Bruce, 
Pardew, that lot all keep swapping jobs. He's, ne- he's, he's never been part of that. I mean, would you want to keep doing that? Because there's a huge amount of, of um, pressure put on. If he wanted to do that, he could have joined Birmingham or QPR in the 90s and he would have found himself on that merry-go-round very quickly, I'm sure, because, uh, you know, until Bruce got hold of Birmingham in 2000 or whenever it was, they were a bit of a shambles for, for quite a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, shall we actually talk about this team some more? Because we've sort of wandered into wandered into talking about uh, Alan Kirbishley, um more generally, I suppose. Uh, so when they come back up, there's a couple of big signings that they make to really put the emphasis on, on survival and, and make sure that, you know, you can come up once and go back down and that's okay, that's part of the growing process. But if you do it twice, you become one of those sides in the 90s, like your Palaces and Sunderlands who bounced up and down over and over again. So they bring in, the big sign is uh, Jonathan Johansson from Rangers, and then they also bring in Klaus Jensen. I forget where they actually sign him from, but he goes on to be a pretty important player and scores some quite impressive goals. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Look, I think you know they had uh, they had a really uh, a really good first eleven, and then also they had some you know some useful players sort of knocking around their their sort of first team squads as well. Um, you know, Sean Bartlett was was really useful, scored an absolute wonder goal. If it's that season, I'm thinking of maybe it's the season before actually. Um, no, this is this is the year he comes in because they only buy him because. Uh, Andy Hunt, if you remember him, yeah, he he develops. I'm going to make sure I get this right, so I don't get sued for post-viral fatigue syndrome this season. So he's been their top scorer in the champion. Uh, oh, sorry, Division One as was, and he's. I forget what he's against Coventry. I think he puts in a great performance, but he can't move afterwards, and it soon becomes clear that you know this is actually going to be a bit of a career ender. This this you know, random freak infection or, or syndrome. And they try and go and buy John Hartson, I think it is. I forget. He might have been at Wimbledon at the time. And they can't agree personal terms. So eventually he just kind of goes out and takes a chance on, on Bartlett. And, and what a chance it turned out to be, because as you say, he scored some great goals. Yeah, he scored, he scores that, that, that crazy, that crazy volley. Um, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely wild. Um, and you know they also they've also got uh, you know they've also got players like Graham Stewart like you know good bit of experience uh, Radzin Kishchev I think he was signing that season very solid uh, solid fullback um, they had a good keeper in Dean Kiley you know so so it was a it was a really um, a really sort of solid. Premier League squad really that it didn't feel like a championship squad you know sometimes when you know when teams come up uh they basically just have the same first 11 they had in the uh you know in the first division and and it just doesn't uh doesn't go very well for them or they do what that that terrible thing Fulham did a couple of years ago oh. where they basically replaced the whole first 11 with players that aren't any better but cost a lot more money they <laughs> just yeah. go straight back down they now call that doing a Fulham, which is uh, we we heard that all last season at Villa. You know, you're doing a Fulham, you're doing a Fulham just because we basically needed more players. But uh, yeah, obviously that didn't stick in the end. But um, no, they they I mean, didn't do that. To be I, fair, your team was a championship team, and oh yeah, yeah, no, it, no it, doubt it, it needed. And this is no the, and this is the balance it. you have to try and strike, isn't it? When you when you're a team that comes up, do you do you stick with? with a team that has spent most of the last year winning. Mm. And I think that's a really underrated thing when it comes to surviving in the Premier League. And it's one um, thing that the, it, the, the two Newcastle sides you've watched have both had an abundance because they've romped that division twice. Uh, and yeah. and it's, a, it's a big difference between my Villa team that came up fifth, I think, through the playoffs and this Charlton side who uh, won the division at a canter. And but the, I mean, the, the, the key difference with, with those Newcastle sides is that, you know, however weak they were in the Premier League, they were Premier League teams in the Championship. Mm. You know, when, you, when you've got, you know, the Kevin, Nola, Kevin Nolan and Joey Barton and 
Colacini and Gutierrez and Steve Harper, those are Premier League players. Mm. Um, but what I will say, just, just, just to finish the thought, is that the Charlton team that came up was actually damn close to that anyway. And they go uh, and beat Man City in their first home game. 4-0. Nil, yeah. nil, and all of the players were players that had been there the previous season as, mm. as they romped that league. And you know, and some of them were like Graham Stewart and Mark Kinsler, who'd obviously been in the Premier League before and, and were Premier League quality players. And even if not everybody was a nailed-on Premier League starter as a team, they were there even before they were promoted. They were playing at that level. And, and that's why they didn't need to do more than just add... I think three high-profile signings is all it really was. It's really interesting as you, as you look through their squads from the following couple of seasons. I mean, most teams seem to grow in size, and Kirbishley's squad seemed to get smaller, as in he worked out the players that he wanted to keep and stuck with them. And they didn't they didn't let him down. I mean, we, I mean these are all te- these are all players that we're familiar with because they played in the Premier League for a number of years. Um, they were consistent performers. For the most part, they stayed fit. There's not a huge amount of, sort of wholesale change in in those squads. And I think these days you seem you seem to get much more chopping and changing in uh, Premier League squads. If you if you don't if you finish too close to the bottom, then that's it. Most of the team's gone, and you bring in the next load of Algerians or Danes or whatever people can find or whatever's cheap that summer. Um, so I think, I mean, Kerbishley's recruitment is generally pretty solid, isn't it? I mean, we've it's been the money some ball. of the names he brought in. It had yes. to be. It had to be solid. He didn't have a choice. Yeah, it's the yeah. money ball approach, isn't it? You know, like long before we kind of heard that term from, you know, from baseball, um, you know, team, you know, managers like Kerbishley had absolutely perfected it, you know, like someone like Chris Powell, who they picked up for literally nothing at all uh, and went on to be one of their greatest, uh, greatest ever defenders um, and, you know, played for England, and, and, played for England and, and is, uh, and is currently one of the, the, uh, the few kind of high profile um, BAME coaches in the league as well. Um, so yeah, he was, he was a really, really important signing and somebody who, I mean, he was considered a bit of a journeyman and, but then Kerbishley, once Kerbishley picked him up, he just, it was just fantastic and just so consistent, like never let anybody down. Um, you know, I mean, Richard Rufus, you know, made his debut as a, as a, a kid in the early, again, in the early to mid nineties. And he was an absolute incredible servant over 10 or 12 years um you know and he was he was the kind of player that had he gone to a big club you know would probably have played for England he was a seriously seriously good defender um you know very cultured centre half um so that you know it was a it was a sort of a, a team which um you know had had loyalty had uh consistency you know uh scott parker plays his first you know 20 games of premier league football um in this season um and is brilliant um you know he basically comes in halfway through the season when kinsella's injured uh he plays so well kinsella doesn't get back in the team next season he plays 38 games um and you know a couple of years later he's part of um the first Abramovich spending spree, you know, but Scott Parker, I mean, it was hilarious. The, I don't know if anyone remembers this bit of trivia, but he was the uh, Jimmy, we're off to McDonald's boy. You remember that advert? Nope. <laughs> I thought it yeah, no. must have been a, we're must a bit have been younger a, than you. Yeah, not, not that much younger. But I mean, I, re- about, I, re- I remember Alan Shearer paying for McDonald's with a check, if that's any use to you. Oh, uh, no, it was, it was, uh, it was an advert around sort of I must have been mid nineties, but everyone knew Scott Parker was like the, you know, just like people talked about Joe Cole before anyone ever saw him play. Like Scott Parker was this kind of guy that you know kid that everyone was saying was going to be this this uh, next great midfielder, but he basically appears in a McDonald's advert juggling a ball in a back garden, and the um, mother 
shouted, you know, Jimmy, it's time. It's, you know, we're off to McDonald's. And then he stopped juggling the ball and went off to get his McDonald's. And that was Scott Parker. <laughs> yeah, the, the first fast food, well, the first, first food advert I can remember involving a footballer was Gareth Southgate after the Euros at, with Pizza Hut. Go, you are there young. Was some, there was some. <laughs> there was some. There was some play on his penalty mess. I can't remember what it was. He was in a bag over his yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, bag that over his head. It. And uh, Waddle and Pierce were trying to make him like feel all right about it while mocking him at the same time. I uh, remember yeah. Stuart Pierce calling over the waitress and excuse me, miss. I mean, but, would would have not gone down well with the sort of the anti-bullying uh, brigade that. Uh, no. <laughs> I feel, like, football these days. I feel like we're getting into the weeds, so I'm going to actually uh, bring up a Scott Parker anecdote that relates to this season, um, which is they, they have one really memorable game for all the wrong reasons, which I think it might have even been Boxing Day, as, as you know, some of these remarkably bad performances often come at Christmas just to really rub it in. And they get battered by West Ham. And yeah, Boxing Day. Yeah, Kerbishley basically reads the riot act to the side and drops half of them. As a result, and that's how Scott Parker gets his debut. It's because just, you know, well, what do you do after a performance like that? You drop half the team. Scott Parker comes in. Oh, he's actually really good. Then they never look back. And it's not like he really wanted rid of um, Kinsella, but you've got Scott Parker now, and he's clearly going to be the future. So that's how the Kinsella to Aston Villa transfer comes around. When Graham Taylor rings up Kirby he's well, I'd rather keep you, but you're going to get more game time at Villa now. Uh, and so that's how he ends up with us for a season. Uh, that's also the game that he drops Chris Powell and he comes back with an attitude of, well, that's not happening to me again. And two games after he's restored to the side, Sven happens to be there. And he gets called up for England like a week or so later. So this game uh, against West Ham and Kerbishley's reaction just has all these kind of knock-on effects on the rest of the side. And um, yeah, this is the very early days when Chris Powell getting an England call-up under this new England manager and the idea that it didn't matter who you were playing for, as long as you were playing well, you might get a game. It had this real feel-good sense throughout a lot of English football, which uh, Sven didn't necessarily keep... Uh, going throughout his entire run, but maybe that's something we're better off talking in a week or two. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Spence versus Ingers squad is hilarious, like, when you look back at it, because it is not really players you associate with the later part of his reign, like, Ekiog scores a goal in his first game. Um, it, I think Barmby's in his first few squads. Yeah, it was a, it was definitely very different to what, ends, what, it, what it ends up being. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you look at this this Charlton season as well because they get some big scalps. You know, they beat Spurs. Um, not that we were very good that season, mind you. Uh, they beat Chelsea. Uh, they beat Chelsea twice, actually. They beat Chelsea. They beat Chelsea home and away. Um, you know, they beat Newcastle, beat Arsenal, uh, beat City home and away. Of course, yeah, City, twice. City went City went down that season, of course. And have um, been promoted as well, I think. It's, so it's not the city of today. It's no, there. of course not. But still, nominally a big team. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I uh, mean, they're all they're all bigger teams than Charlton, however you slice it. I mean, except maybe Bradford if they're still there. Um, so you know, any win is a good win for for a team that comes up with those kind of resources. I would say the one game that stands out to me is, isn't a win. It's the three-all draw with Man United, where they they basically play them off the park you know you get a couple of freak goals uh and pull out into a 3-1 lead and yet somehow they managed to like grit it out and find a way to come back to three all and that's a fantastic performance yeah and well you know it's that era where no matter what united were going to find a way to come away with some points wasn't it <laughs> yeah the one the bit that stands out for me is ryan Giggs lamping it towards the goal from his own half and it just sort of swirling around and deceiving Kylie, bouncing off the post and Solskjaer just happens to be running in so he's got a tap in. Uh, but yeah, the ball is played from 50-odd yards on a speculative Beckham-esque shot and uh, they still manage to score from it, the jammy so-and-sos. No, indeed. So, um, I mean, I think when you look at their final league position... Uh, they almost did themselves a favour finishing ninth because they escaped the dreaded Intertoto Cup, which, you know, which which Villa, uh, Villa took on. Yeah, uh, we were slightly better resourced, so we had the kind of squad that meant we could go into the Intertoto without really affecting us too much. But it's telling that you had to 
apply to be in the Intertoto Cup, and most teams didn't bother because, you know, Sunderland finished above us that year with that wonderful Quinn and Phillips strike pairing, and they didn't bother going in for it. Um, so, yeah, Charlton, I think, are the kind of side that would have suffered had they had to start a season in early July, which usually was what the Intertoto Cup involved. We'll have to do a special Intertoto Cup episode at some point, just because it is such a bizarre competition. Like, I feel like... Am I, am I, right, Newcastle have won it in, <laughs> in recent... Like, we, we, we took part and we won it in recent memory. But am I right in thinking that there are three finals? Yep. Like, it's, it's not just, like one team wins the Intertoto Cup. It's no. like there's there's almost like three tournaments within one tournament and you have three champions. Yes, it makes the, it makes the Europa that? League look sensible. Like, that's how mad it is. I mean, it's why, I mean, Villa have won it too, but it's why I don't count it. You you cannot count winning the Intertoto Cup as, a, as winning a I tournament. Mean, you, a you, might as well count, trophy. you might as well count any pre-season tournament that you've won that's like friendlies in Malaysia at that point. You know, um, Unfortunately... We um, are so starved of silverware... Yeah, trophy, I, I, trophy. I, yeah. Like I, I got widely mocked by uh, all the kids at school because uh, Spurs' social media put out after they won some tin pot preseason uh, trophy round robin against like Bayern and a few other teams. Like uh, it was like I think it was in Pochettino's last year, and we and it was like the Aldi Cup. And of course, all the kids like, you know, saying to me, <laughs> oh, Audi Cup winners, because Spurs' <laughs> social media made an unfortunately big deal over it. Yeah, you, you can't play it up. You have to, like, no sell it or the whole thing. Just <laughs> it looks worse to, like, celebrate it. The Audi Cup. Still not as bad as, like, being uh, being Sunderland and winning the Papa John's trophy. Oof. Yeah, I mean, even though that's like a, an act, I mean... The worst thing about that, of course, is that it, it's Sunderland. I mean, winning that trophy when you're an actual small side is probably great. It's probably a nice doubt at Wembley. But this is one of the most successful oh, clubs, indeed. one of the most successful clubs in English football history, and they're winning the lower tier FA Cup. I mean, I, I think that's actually that's even better than them getting relegated. It's actually winning it. Point of view. It's celebrating. They've it. actually. They've, they've fallen so far, they can actually go and win the Papa John's trophy. <laughs> I mean, you might, drawn, you might get drawn against them in, it in a year or two, so you might want to I, keep your Well, drink. yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be, to be honest, the, I mean, we, the, the run we've had of getting promoted at the first attempt, that, that, that's going to run out eventually. I could just see it now, the 2024 Papa John's trophy final. Newcastle versus <laughs> Newcastle versus Sunderland. Newcastle nil, Sunderland three. And Steve Bruce was very encouraged by the performance. Oh, <laughs> encouraged by that thing, seriously. But yeah, so I mean, the sort of the few seasons after this as well, it's worth kind of thinking about, like just what an incredible run this was, because although you know they kind of have a little bit of a step back you know, the season afterwards, they finish, they kind of finish 14th and then 12th uh, in the sort of uh, 01, 02 and 02, 03. But then 7th in 03, 04. Which is the peak then, of it, really. Yeah, pretty incredible. Then, you know, then 11th. Um, and then in sort of Kerbish uh last year, it's, it's, um, it's 13th, and then Ian Dowie takes them down. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, Dowie gets like three months, doesn't he? And then they um, go through two managers in the rest of the year with um, Les Reed for a short spell, who was one of those... Pardew. Yeah, Pardew coaches, was a former player as well. Yeah, coaches promoted above their level. I think Les Reed uh, jumps out at you as that kind of appointment. And Pardew was obviously someone brought to the club by Kirbishley, so there's, it all kind of comes full circle in a sense. Yeah, Pardew was, uh, you know, uh, like really good player for them as a as a player. Um, but yeah, I guess he he was kind of uh, get his um, he, you know his kind of more prominent managerial uh, success elsewhere, wouldn't he? And of course, uh, not so much success depending. I mean, Remember Jekyll you... Hyde manager Pardew, wasn't he? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking, what, what, what is his big success? Is it finishing sixth or seventh with Newcastle or whatever it was, or, or it was fifth, yeah, that, fifth, that, or, or or reaching the FA Cup final with West Ham? It's yeah, one or the that other. that West Ham, that really good West Ham season when they had Dean Ashton, uh, and then that really good season at Newcastle, they had um, the two Senegalese. Oh, we had, yeah, we had Bar and Cisse and Kabay and Tiote in midfield and. Uh, ben Arthur, oh, what player! Yeah, so but I yeah, think that... but then that was that was more that was more to do with Graham Carr's recruitment than um, I mean, you Pardew know, started to set the system, I suppose, but the the, the personnel brought in were nothing to do with Pardew. Um, I, I think he's not he's not remembered fondly on Tyneside. Um, no, because he's because of Cockney Mafia man. Yeah, well, there's there's that, and and it it did all fall apart rather yeah, quickly just, after that. It just went uh, bad. It just went bad in the end, didn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I, it does it does show that influence of Kirby though that literally he leaves and the next season they get relegated. You know, so from thirteenth to nineteenth, that's a pretty precipitous drop. And before that, they'd gone. They were managing to convince players like Paolo Di Canio to sign for them, which is, you know, really probably the most high profile player they've had in their entire history i don't well they had they had a um they had a, Bank for, in the early 80s her. they had a european football of the year um in alan simonson okay uh so but obviously he had kind of joined them again at the sort of you know back end of his career yeah well i mean um, that's also true of decanio to be fair but uh I will, uh, yeah, European Football of the Year is obviously uh, pretty high profile. I will give him the nod over Hasselbank, though, on the grounds that Hasselbank has never been grabbed around the neck by Fabio Capello, which is always a good bit of trivia. Well, I mean, who who hasn't I mean, played Fabio <laughs> Capello being grabbed around the neck by him? It's kind that's of why he, Fabio Capello's MO, that, isn't it? That's why he it's went inter- It's interesting, though, because, I mean, we've, we've talked about sort of Kirishi's squad and how stable it was, and you look at the squad that went down and it's not great <laughs> you know we've got um i'm not even sure who the keeper is here darren randolph he uh, was thomas Bird. for a spell wasn't he they, yeah they, they had thomas myra as well and scott carson came in on loan from liverpool it must be a young scott carson uh, yeah, oh no. um they had both darren and marcus bent um, yes, uh, Darren had become the starting centre forward for them by this point. So when they get relegated, he gets a, a move. Uh, he, when he was at Ipswich and they wanted to sign him, uh, he was apparently so keen on the move that his nickname at Ipswich became Bobby, which I quite enjoy. <laughs> uh, then Andy Reid, which I think probably tells you all you need to know about how things were going. Um, well, it's not unlike what we talked about when Bolton let go of Allardyce. You know, they hadn't wanted to give him the money. And I think it's a slightly different situation at Charlton because the money genuinely wasn't there, uh, as you know, that's why there'd have been all that chaos in the 90s. And they were never going to become a club that spent money they didn't have, at least in that era. I don't know quite how badly things have gone since. But in a sense, there was all right, well, we have to start to spend now that we don't have the stability. And £3 million had been a lot of money for a transfer in the Kerbishley era. Then all of a sudden, after that, that spell, you're looking at you know, £2 million on Jimmy Troy from Liverpool, and, and, and Troy was not a raging success. Amdi Fai, £2 million. £3 million on Scott Carson. Sorry, uh, that's not the right. Like we're talking about Andy Reid was three million. Scott Carson was a season on loan. We, I think, we were the only ones stupid enough to actually pay a fee to loan Scott Carson in that stage. Uh, Diawara was the best part of four million. So all of a sudden, you've got these signings that would have been marquee signings for Kirbishley. That uh, and, and you know these were the kind of fees going on on Johansson and Jensen when they they came up, and they're on run of the mill players that do nothing to help them survive they're squad players and they and the thing is and there's no real identity to this squad like you can see i mean you i can't picture this team being put out whereas 
the one that the, the players and the, the squad that Kirby had, I can picture how that team set up. Um, and I guess that's what happens when teams start, you know, they, they lose their identity. And I guess when, you know, Ian Dowry's not, not an experienced manager and um, certainly doesn't have the um, the know-how of that squad that Kirby did. And I'm, I'm not quite sure he knew what to do with it. Um I mean, Ian, Dow- Ian Dowie was coming off that season with Palace where he'd got relegated after taking them up. But they'd got, but when he took them over, they were so low down in the second tier that even getting into the playoffs meant he still had this bit of goodwill left over. So that's why Dowie got the job. But I don't think he's worked in management since you know, after the this. Last, he goes to Coventry, he goes to- I remember. He and he was at Newcastle. He was Shearer's assistant at Newcastle um, in, in 2009. And I'm, I'm not a, what a position I'm to be. Sure. But I don't think after, oh, Co- after after Coventry, I don't think he gets another job because he, he literally destroys his reputation as a manager. Goes I mean, to what, QPR. Okay. Well, I mean, everyone everyone has managed QPR at some point. I've managed QPR. Yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, the, the funny thing about that side, though, is that a lot of the players that were in the in the squad were actually still the players who'd done a good job. I mean, Carson came out of it with a lot of credit from that year on loaning gold. But then Luke Young, Herman O'Reiderson, they came out of it with tremendous amounts of credit. Matty Holland was almost an ever-present, uh, and he'd been a good player under under Kerbishley. So, yeah, there's a lot of the... It, I suppose it goes to show that in a side like that, the difference between 7th, 13th, and... 19th or 20th, wherever they came, it's actually quite slim. You don't need to upset the apple cart too much, and you go from being a side that's reasonably well established to one that can drop out of the division with a bit of a whimper. Yeah, it's players, isn't it? That's all it is. It's a fine line, you know, and it's, it just takes, it just takes, uh, I think, you know, a bit of bad management here, uh, a sort of lack of. Lack of players there, you know, bad injury to, to a key, you know, key member of the team, and suddenly, you know, you're in trouble. Um, and once you're in that that kind of dogfight, it's just it's it's the teams that keep their nerve. It's a shame they've gone. I remember thinking at the time it was a, it was a shame they've gone. Because, I mean, because, because as we said, they're probably not coming back anytime soon. I can't. I mean, they've been further down. They got. They they were in League One, not too long ago. They're in League One. They're in League One again now. League One now, are they? Yeah. Yeah. So they went up to the Championship and and uh, did did, you know made a good account of themselves, but they've gone down again now. Like by writing, thinking that they've just been dumped by Lee Bowyer. Well, I mean, he's one of their most legendary players. I mean, he was he was (sighs) one of their first one of their first. you know, sort of young stars to to, to get sort of um, sold on and, and to, got, to, he's to just Leeds, been, of course. He's just been them off for Birmingham. Yeah, I mean, he'd obviously. Yeah. Well, it's it's quite an interesting story because he uh, he was kind of behind that inspirational promotions to the championship, but of course, then because of their uh, their owners, that the, you know not wanting to spend any money he didn't have the resources to stay in the championship and he's kind of taken the bet that you know although sort of Charlton is his home club and he's very beloved there um you know Birmingham's the place that he's going to have a bit of money to spend and actually build build the team so I guess that's the gamble that he's taken he's also never really seem to have loved Charlton the way he's been beloved by their fans and as as player or manager he's always seemed to be looking for the better bet somewhere else uh, I know they were kind of keen to keep hold of him for a little bit longer as a player before he went to a top club and he pretty much made it clear he was on the way out the door then and clearly that's the same situation now with Birmingham who are not exactly a model of stability themselves no I, I guess I guess he's just betting on the fact that you know, it's that it's almost like an arrogance thing as well, isn't it? Because you think of all the managers that have gone into Birmingham, like quite high profile managers, and no matter how uh, what promises they've been given about funds to spend, it's always gone a bit wrong for them. So it may not end up being the uh, the best career move, but 
I think he. Uh, I think given the ownership situation at Charles, it probably couldn't get any worse. So how do we sum up this this Charlton team? They were they were the first of a, of a long line of, of 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 little teams that could, I suppose, without wanting to be too patronising. I mean, it's, it's it's I mean, I think it's probably worth saying that you know in the pre Premier League era they were a, a fixture in the old top division through you know through the eighties and into. And, you know, just they got relegated in 1990. So they've been around the top division, you know, a fair bit. So it's not like they'd never been there before ever. It's just that they just about, you know, missed that birth of the Premier League. And it took them those seven, you know, those sort of six or seven years to, to get up there in the first place. So it was a real journey for them to get there and a real, you know, nice five or six journey five or six year journey in the league itself um but yeah i think certainly you could say that bournemouth is probably i think their spiritual successor maybe brighton to an extent although i think brighton have got a bit more money than charlton ever had um at that same sort of stage um swansea to a degree would you know again swansea probably spent a bit more money than charlton did um, I just but, wonder if Brentford will be the the, the next the, the yeah. next Charlton. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think Brent if if Brentford had gone up last season when they still had Ollie Watkins and say they'd managed to keep hold of you know of Ollie Watkins, like actually you know it'd be really would have been really interesting to see how Brentford would have done this season because I think they would have done well. It'd be you know the extra year. I wonder what happens there. Um, but yeah, they, they are a good candidate to be that kind of team. Yeah, I think, I mean, when I look at it, I see, as I say, when they came up, we saw a side that we didn't expect to see in the top flight. And I think if you look in their history, that 80s run was a, was part of the aberration rather than the norm. And they're, they're a second tier side for most of their history. And what I think that run did was made it so that by the time that by the time that Kirbishley left, we weren't shocked that they were there anymore. Uh, you know, and they're now a side that you look at them in League One and think actually that's what's weird, and that's part of the legacy, I suppose, is just what a couple of good years where you are consistently in the top flight and you have those years when you finish ninth and seventh and you can entertain that could do all wonders for your kind of position in the national game and so much of it I guess comes back to Kirbishley and, and recruitment and you know, the fact that he was very much the football man and they tried not to get too much in his way and they, they ran the club as they saw fit but you know resources were given to, to Kirbishley to do with as, as he saw best and he did work wonders to the point where to the point where when he um, when they were looking for Sven's replacement, there was a lot of people angling that, you know, it should be Kirbishley that got the job. And, you know, if you believe the rumours, there was a Kirbishley camp and an Allardyce camp and, and Steve McLaren ended up being kind of a the only person way they could agree was to go agree on a kind of consensus candidate. The, the way that they've gone since is obviously very sad, but it does show just how important succession planning can be because you they didn't have the right man in mind Ian Dowie was very much a flavor of the month and and ended up paying for it but I guess what you can say just as a kind of finishing thought is both of those sides the one that came up the first time around and dropped out with Clive Mendonca and then the one that came up and actually made it stick with Johansson and Klaus Jensen before he moves off to Fulham and you know, Sean Bartlett and Matty Holland and Mark Kinsler leading into Scott Park. You know, all these these players and that, that great defensive lineup. We mentioned Richard Rufus. We could do an hour on Richard Rufus. You know, by the time you add all that up, you know, that's really the, the legacy is that they just played some great stuff and they brought a side that we didn't think had any business being in the division and they made it so that you couldn't almost imagine it without them and it was weird than when they left. Okay. Well, we'll wrap things up there. Um, just a brief word on next week. We go from 
low expectations to the greatest of expectations. Um, we're going to have a chat about the golden generation and the England side that's pressed so much at the, the start of the century, um, but as we well know, failed to deliver. So we're going to have a look back at, at what all that involved, what quite come through with the, the promise that they uh, they showed um, in their early careers. Um, we're hoping we're going to get Mazza back for that one. So uh, do join us. Uh, we're, we're very much looking forward to, to that one. It's a two-parter as well, because there's so much to cover in it. Um, we, we're going to split it into two parts. So uh, we look forward to seeing you for that next week. If you enjoyed this week's show you can find more of us on spotify apple podcasts acast or your regular podcast provider don't forget to rate and subscribe you can keep up with us on twitter at 4atbpod thanks for listening